I get to see miracles happen. You are what you eat, but you are what the thing you're eating is. Do you really think our hunter-gatherer ancestors crawled out of their cave and said, what's for breakfast? You had to find breakfast. Average America is eating 16 hours a day nearly constant. Only takes a break for sleep. The more intact the wall of your gut is, the longer you're going to live and the longer you're going to live well, which is obviously what most of us want. There is only one supplement that I think almost everyone on this planet should be taking, and that's a full-spectrum and highly bioavailable magnesium supplement because, well, let's face it, ever since the Industrial Revolution, our soil has been depleted of magnesium, and therefore our food is depleted of magnesium. And on top of that, our modern environments, which are inherently overstimulating and stressful, are constantly depleting our body of magnesium. And unlike other nutrients, this is not something that your body can produce on its own. It literally needs to get it from the diet. And one individual kind of magnesium alone is not enough. You actually need seven different kinds to support over 300 biochemical reactions that help regulate your nervous system, red blood cell production, energy production, uh, managing stress and emotions, etc. And so the folks at Bioptimizers have made it very easy and convenient to add back in what the modern world leaves out. They've created Magnesium Breakthrough. Now, I've been taking this for the past two years, and the biggest benefits that I've seen are related to my evening wind-down sessions and my sleep. I tend to be pretty overactive in the evenings, just totally overthinking everything that I do. And this has helped me wind down and get more restorative, more efficient sleep. So I wake up feeling way more refreshed, more energized, more clear, more ready for the day. And the way that I see it, sleep is upstream of essentially every other health and wellness related habit and decision. Because if you're sleeping better, automatically you're going to have more regular cravings. You're going to have higher insulin sensitivity. You can derive more of all these inputs like fitness, right? You make more gains, you gain more muscle, you burn more calories, and you wake up feeling refreshed so that you can do it again and again and again. And then beyond the fitness, you have more energy to go for a walk, to do fun activities with friends. You are less stressed so you can socialize anxiety-free. And you're also going to be retaining, refreshing, and refining your skills and information much, much better. So you won't forget any names. And uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, over 300 biochemical processes that you're supporting with magnesium. Then sleep, I mean, wow. Better sleep is just a better life in general. So I found it extremely helpful on a personal level, and I'm sure that you guys will find it helpful too. Your mind and body, and maybe even your spirit will, will thank you. So anyway, if you want to get a sweet little discount off of this amazing, amazing magnesium supplement from Bioptimizers, all you have to do is visit the show notes. So you scroll down right now, takes just a couple seconds and boom, you'll have access to all seven different kinds of magnesium that your body needs. All you have to do is hit the link and use code KYP for Know Your Physio, KYP. That's all. Enjoy 10 to 22% off depending on the package you choose, whether or not you subscribe. I'm obviously subscribed because I don't even want to think about whether or not I'm going to get this essential supplement in the mail. And uh, yeah, hope you guys enjoy that awesome stuff. And that's all for now. I'll see you guys on the show. Dr. Gundry. Here we are on the Know Your Physio podcast. 
I have been a huge fan for a long time, both of your work, of your olive oil, and now of your book. And uh, it's such an honor to have you on the show now. It's I can't wait to dig into all this amazing substance with you. Welcome. Well, thanks, thanks for having me, and uh, wish I was there in Miami with you now. But I'm going to have to suffer here in, in Santa Barbara instead. Oh yeah, I've heard that 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 Santa Barbara is definitely a place to suffer. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, there's a lot awesome. of suffering. <laughs> so, look, we have a lot of stuff that we want to cover today. All things longevity, blue zones, uh, gut health, etc. But I typically start these shows asking one question, and that is. Why do you do what you do? Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a kid in a candy store, and that's a bad analogy, but I see, I see patients still six days a week, even on Saturday and Sunday. And on the seventh day, I don't rest. I go to Gundry MD, my uh, supplement and food uh, company. Why in the world... Uh, do I do that basically every single day? Because uh, I get to I get to see miracles happen that I I really wouldn't have believed 25 years ago when I started down this path that I would get to see. And it's just like not a day goes by that I don't get to see some remarkable turnaround in in somebody's life. Just by following what Hippocrates said 2,500 years ago, that all disease begins in the gut. Mm-mm. And it's like, holy cow, how did this guy know, know this? And I've spent 25 years trying to figure out how he knew it. And I'm, I'm getting closer every year. Um, but yeah, that's, that's why I get up every morning. That's, that's amazing. And when, when it comes to, the knowledge and awareness that we had 2,500 years ago, how do you think that, how do you think that we developed that level of intuition then that I think so many of us are lacking now, even with this unlimited access to information? Why did that make sense then and why doesn't it make sense now? Well, he had talked about, and it's very California speak, he believed in all of us, all creatures, had a green life force energy that wanted us to have perfect health. And he thought that uh, there were external factors that were suppressing that green life force energy from expressing itself. And he believed that a, a physician's job was to basically be a detective and to figure out what those external factors were and teach the patient to remove those external factors. And then the patient, green life force energy, would, would take care of everything, would, would, would heal the patient. And as, as hokey as it sounds, um, that's, that's what he knew, that's what he did, and that's what I do. So I'm, I'm just a dumb detective. And I look at what is impeding the the patient and the microbiome, if you will, from healing that patient. And when we take those things away, uh, Hippocrates takes over. So it's the problem has been that you know we, we we've lost touch 
with fundamental principles of what creates health, what produces health, uh, what keeps health going. And we always look for uh, alternative reasons. Um, you know, I, I, in the new book, Gut Check, uh, did you ever watch Men in Black, um, the, the movie? Um, there's, a, there's a scene in Men in Black where they're, they're grabbing a pug, Frank the Pug, and they're they're looking for um, they're looking for uh, this alien, and they're shaking the pug. And Frank the pug says, "Well, you're you're looking for you're looking for this galaxy that they're looking for. It's on Orion's belt." And they're going Orion's belt. You know that's not even here on Earth. And they said, "You you humans, you think for something to be important, it has to be big." Well, it's the small things that are important. Very, very small things. And it turns out that the punchline of the movie was uh, Orion was a cat and the belt uh, on Orion's neck held a little marble. And the marble was this entire galaxy of multiple beings. And that was the punchline. And Frank the Pug was right. We're always looking for big things, and in fact, it's these little things. And purpose of the book is we have a hundred trillion different bacteria that live in our microbiome in our gut, and they're really little but really powerful. And what's shocking, I guess, is that almost everything good or bad that happens to us. Um, is powered by either good or bad things happening to our microbiome and to the wall of our gut. And that's, so yeah, it's little things. Do you think that in this modern day that we can set the stage for physiological excellence and return to this uh, ideal quality of life that nature intended like human beings essentially could do 2,500 years ago? Given how yeah, much the, no, the world really has do. changed, can we still return to these ideally, you know, intended natural ways? Is that possible? Yes, um, it's really hard, uh, but it, there there are workarounds. And you know, if you look at, for instance, hunter gatherers, um, they they have a robust microbiome, a diverse microbiome. Like I talk about in the book, their microbiome changes with the seasons, and it, and you know, in the wet season, it's one sort of microbiome; in the dry season, another. And there have been even researchers who have gone and gotten fecal transplants from Hudza microbiome, and sadly, um, those bugs only stick around for a week or so because they you can't feed them what they really want to eat and part of the book is well we got to know what these guys want to eat and we've got to give them the things they need because we're beginning to realize that this microbiome maybe we should call it the brown life force energy just so we know what we're doing. 
produces all these amazing compounds that produces perfect health. I'll give you an example, which everybody now has heard about um, endocrine disruptors in our fragrances and in our plastics and in all of our clothing. And they're, 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 they're called xenobiotics, just, just what we needed, in other words. Uh, if you look at super old people, people 105 years of age who are doing well, these people have a microbiome that actively eats xenobiotics, eats microplastics, eats uh, estrogen disruptors. And people, hopefully I have some, but most of us, that microbiome is gone. They've, they've been totally wiped off our planet Earth because of what we've been doing. So the good news is these super old people are super old because their microbiome, which their home, has got their back. And so learning what the microbiome needs, learning what get out of our system yeah, we, we can get back there, but it's going to take individual efforts. Government's not going to help us. Certainly big food is not going to help us. Big pharma is not going to help us. Uh, big medicine is not going to help us. As I like to joke, sickness is good for business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and and I, I always say to second that, like if you don't invest in your health now, you're going to have to invest in health care later. And I think that if we consider the gut microbiome's role in health, then it's such an effective, passive investment to make. It's from the way I see it, at least, and, I, and I'd love your take on this, it's a relatively cheap investment. If you consider that, you know, just avoiding sugar, avoid, uh, managing stress, adding in pre and probiotics strategically, and even just a little bit every day can go a really, really long way. So what do you think is, would you agree or disagree that uh, investing in your gut microbiome is relatively cheap and has a huge ROI. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, when I was in medical school in the dark ages, uh, there were autoimmune diseases, but they were so rare. I mean, they, you know, things like psoriasis or Crohn's or rheumatoid arthritis, they were so rare that the tests, the blood tests we used to measure them were called funny tests. And they were called funny tests because you almost never ran them. And then, you know, when everything else ran out, you go, ah, let's run the funny test. And now, of course, 90% of the commercials we see on TV are, you know, all these happy people with autoimmune diseases who are, you know, who are taking a, you know, a biologic um, and dancing in the streets. These things are now rampant. I mean, 80 million women in America have Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Uh, it's like, what? Um, and, you know, everybody's got psoriasis and everybody's got Crohn's. And, um, and so these things are, are brand new. Um, they're unprecedented. So you got to go, wow, um, I don't think I want to be on a, an immune suppressing drug the rest of my life. Thank you. Um, how do I get out of this situation? So, we now know that because this never happened in the past, or incredibly rarely, that in the last 50 years, things have shifted. 
in our diet and in the food we eat and the way we harvest our food. And and one of the the major topics in the book that I I do want to dig into, and and I'm sure there's a lot of little subtopics that we can maybe explore before we dive deep into this one, um, but it's this idea that we used to think a lot of disease influenced the gut and maybe that exacerbated the disease, but now we know that it can actually start in the gut and it's the root of many diseases, including neurodegenerative diseases. Can you help us expand a little here and sort of put into perspective why we were under this impression and how it's been proven to be wrong? Yeah, um, you know, in modern medicine started to um, divide into specialties. Uh, and we approach each of our specialties, you know, kind of wearing our specialist hat. So uh, coronary artery disease, we, you know, started worrying about cholesterol and the cholesterol hypothesis of coronary artery disease. Uh, in uh, neurology, we started worrying about oh, there's amyloid deposits in the brain and tau proteins in the brain. But, uh, and so we approached it from that. Uh, unfortunately, none of us really took a bigger picture. In fact, one of my friends is David Perlmutter and another one is uh, another famous neurologist, Dale Bredesen, who wrote The End of Alzheimer's. And, we chat all the time and we, we laugh and they said, isn't this hilarious? You know, a cardiologist and heart surgeon and a couple of neurologists, all we talk about is the gut. You know, it's like, why didn't we realize that, you know, my, my specialty was, was being impacted by the gut. Their, their specialty was being impacted by the gut. And I think this, one of the enlightening things that, uh, took place is that we know that people with Parkinson's disease, which is rampant now, uh, one of the presenting findings is that people with Parkinson's uh, have constipation. And so it was always assumed that, well, the constipation is, is from the Parkinson's disease, that the nerves aren't getting the right information and the bowel isn't moving. So when they started kind of looking into this further, first of all, with, with humans, they, they did biopsies of neurons near the lining of the gut. And lo and behold, they found Lewy bodies, which is uh, one of the diagnostic features of uh, Parkinson's, in the wall of the gut, in the gut itself. And they're going, what the heck? What are those guys doing there? You know, this is a problem with motion up in the brain. Well, in experimental models, they realized that what was happening was that uh, people developed leaky gut and the nerves surrounding the bowel were the first to get affected. And then this information and these agents climbed the vagus nerve and hit the brain. In fact, as I talk about in the book, um, there's a great big nerve called the vagus nerve that runs from the brain uh, down uh, 
talks to the heart, talks to the lungs, talks to the bowel. And we've always thought that the brain kind of, that's how the brain sent messages down to the rest of the organs, the sympathetic nervous system. Lo and behold, for every fiber that goes from the brain down to the gut on the vagus nerve, there's nine fibers going up from the gut to the brain. Uh, so it was actually the other way around. There was a gut-brain axis, not a brain-gut axis. But what get, what got people really interested in, um, back in the dark ages, we used to treat ulcer disease with a vagotomy, where we cut the vagus nerve. And I used to do them when I was trained as a general surgeon. And we did a lot of them. Uh, lo and behold, people who had their vagus nerve cut for an ulcer problem have a 50% reduction in developing Parkinson's disease. And you go, what? Are you sure? Well, more recently, rather than cutting the whole nerve, we used to just cut the part of the vagus nerve that went to the stomach because that was the troublemaker we thought. And the rest of the nerve was intact. In those people, they didn't have any difference in Parkinson's because um, most of the nerve was intact. So we now know we've looked we've looked at all these things completely backwards, and that the problem is coming from the gut, causing a problem in the brain, causing a problem with the blood vessels of the heart that I was interested in, and. That's all disease begins in the gut. I mean, that's fascinating. And I think it speaks to me personally because I recently did a DNA test and I found out that I have a genetic predisposition for Parkinson's. And when I first read that, I freaked out. I freaked out and I called all my friends that are doing Parkinson's research. And that might sound funny to some people, but I actually have a few friends that just happen to be doing research in that area. And both of these friends actually literally laughed at me. They said, Andres, you're the living, breathing representation of what everyone should do to either prevent or slow the onset of Parkinson's. And I was, they were helping me, you know, sort of catch my breath because it was a very difficult thing to see, especially because I, uh, from the research that I've looked at, there's like a tenfold increased likelihood of early onset if you were diagnosed with ADD, which I was, and like a hundredfold, uh, 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 you know, increased likelihood if, if you were given amphetamines. And so I freaked out because that was that was me for, for a few years. Anyway, um, they helped me relax. And ever since then, I've been fascinated by all the different ways, all the different things you can add into your life, the things you can add into your nutrition that can prevent Parkinson's and specifically like understanding their mechanisms. And this right here blows me away. Are there any specific strains of uh, pre or, pro or probiotics that you found to be helpful in preventing Parkinson's or slowing the onset of it? Yeah, so that brings up uh, another really interesting little tidbit in the book. Uh, most of most of our fate is not controlled by our genes. Uh, we actually have very few genes compared to the genetic load that uh, is in our microbiome. Um, we've got twenty one thousand uh, different genes. Our microbiome contains over 3 million different genes. And one of the interesting things, we know that our 
genes control about 8% of what's going to happen to us. Uh, 92% is totally environmental eating microbiome. So that's the good news. The other interesting thing, um, all of us uh, in heart disease and brain disease are interested in people who carry the ApoE4 mutation. And about 30% of people carry this mutation. And it's unfortunately nicknamed the Alzheimer's gene because it does have an increased risk of developing Alzheimer's. And I have a big practice in these people, so does Heck Perlmutter and Dr. Bredesen. But one of the revelations uh, in researching this book, which actually never occurred to me, was that the ApoE4 gene changes the microbiome. And it prevents uh, a, a lush microbiome that makes short-chain fatty acids, things like butyrate, butyric acid. And as I've written in my other books, and I'll go into it even more, if you wanted to prevent most things like Parkinson's, you would want to have a rich supply of butyrate and butyrate-producing bacteria. And so now, knowing this with my patients with the ApoE4 gene, and again, 30% of people have it, I actively give them uh, bacteria that are known butyrate producers, and you can buy these now. And I make sure they're eating tons of soluble fiber which these bacteria like. The other thing that we talk about in the book, you could take, you could, well, let's take human beings. Uh, and the Sonnenberg husband and wife team at Stanford did this. Everybody knows soluble fiber, soluble fiber. You got to eat soluble fiber because that's what your good gut buddies want. That's what they need to make butyrate, which is true. So they, they took some volunteers and they divide them into two groups. One group got a ton of soluble fiber. And the other group got a ton of soluble fiber, but they also got fermented foods like yogurt, like kefir, like vinegars. And they looked at their gut microbiome biodiversity. And biodiversity means the more different guys you got, the better. Uh, and they looked at their inflammation markers. And lo and behold, the people who just got the fiber had no improvement in biodiversity of the right brown and no improvement in their inflammation. The folks who got the fermented foods and the fiber, those are the ones that did both. So they got a more microbiome diversity and lowered their inflammation. And I spend a lot of time talking about that in the book, that it, it basically takes two. You've got to give bacteria things they want to eat, but they also, which is surprising, they need other compounds that other bacteria make before they can make the substance like butyrate that, we, that will benefit us. And uh, uh, I hate to use the expression, but it takes a village. And that, that's one of the big findings of, of Gut Check that I think 
probably surprises a lot of people. It shouldn't, because when we look at long-lived societies um, that I talk about in the book, all of these societies are eating a lot of fermented foods, whether they did it on purpose or was just from a survival standpoint. So the good news for you is the more butyrate you can produce, uh, the more you will do well from a long-term standpoint. Thank you for that. And I actually recently heard that uh, acromantia, the bacteria acromantia is good at uh, supporting the production of butyrate as well. So can I indirectly influence the butyrate and have a similar effect if I just take the acromantia or eat foods that are rich in acromantia? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of acromantia. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I take it every day. I take a combination of acromantia and butyrate producing bacteria and then I also have a supplement that contains nano encapsulated butyrate that that I take every day um, from Gundry MD but I'm not pitching my products but yeah butyrate well, I'm gonna look for it I'm gonna look for it I'm gonna start taking it um I okay, have biocomplete three there there's my well, what is my it called biocomplete three cool Awesome. Yeah, I have been playing around with butyrate here and there. Um, I have seen some benefits uh, with digestion when I take it occasionally. Um, you know, when, whenever it comes to these bacteria or probiotic strains, one of my concerns, and maybe this isn't, this shouldn't be a concern at all, but one of my concerns is overgrowth of this strain. Um, how do we measure that? How do we know that these beneficial strains aren't, we're not overdoing it with them? How do we monitor that? Well, a couple things. Most probiotics that we consume uh, aren't actually part of our natural gut flora. They essentially, when we swallow them, they go on vacation in Miami for a couple weeks and hang out in the sun in our gut uh, and then leave. So it's very, very difficult to you know, over-consume these things. That's, that's the first part. The second thing that is important is that, yeah, there are, quote, bad bugs and there are good bugs, but we actually have to have some bad bugs to balance everything. But if you've got leaky gut, if you've got the, a porous wall of your gut, then even good bacteria that can get across the wall of your gut are viewed as you know, troublemakers. So we're not supposed to have bacteria living in, in us and our immune system goes crazy when they see these things. So you know, a lot of times it's not so much, you know, that the probiotics were overgrowing or were bad for you, but you, you, your basic problem was a leaky gut. Mm. And so if we want to get all our bases covered, let's say that we're eating pre and probiotic rich foods that we're adding in strategic strains that, you know, have these benefits, especially if they align with some kind of genetic predisposition, right? How do we cover all our bases to make sure that not only are we investing in the gut microbiota, but also in our, in our gut as a whole so that we don't end up with this, you know, with, with the outcome of, of leafy, leaky gut? Well, you know, I wrote a lot about this in uh, my bestseller, The Longevity Paradox, a few years ago. And there's a, there's a worm 
that is used in uh, all longevity research called C. elegans. And the worm has a little tiny digestive tract. And like all of us, uh, its lining of its gut is only one cell thick. And shockingly, the lining of our gut is the same surface area as a tennis court. So when everybody's watching the Miami Open next year, uh, there is a tennis court inside of us. And it's only one cell thick. So that everything that we swallow is only one cell away from the rest of us. And in C. elegans research, uh, that little worm starts to die as the wall of it of its gut begins to get breached and the more it gets breached the faster it ages the more it slows down and the slower it gets breached the longer it it lives and so uh and again i think hippocrates was right we i would have paraphrased him that all disease begins in a leaky gut. And the good news is you can repair a leaky gut. So that gets back to the second point. I can I can sell you some supplements that will repair your leaky gut, and they're, they're really good at doing that. But if you keep swallowing razor blades, as I call them, that will literally tear holes in the wall of your gut, you'll just reopen it and start the process all over again. So to me, and the reason the plant paradox, I think, caught on so well is that, um, you know, I identified a lot of the troublemakers in many people's diets and taught people to, you know, eliminate these things. And just like Hippocrates, once I teach you to eliminate the things that are, suppressing your your health the the green life force will take over so it's it's really a two thing you you gotta repair the wall of your gut it's got to be intact and you got to stop the process of tearing it open all the time by food selection and and what are some foods or types of food that can support the repair of the gut i for example have heard of Things like you know bone broth being really helpful, and certain types of fat and fatty acids. Um, what would you say are some of the foods that almost everyone should add in to prevent something like leaky gut? Well, probably the first thing I would take away from anybody's diet is bone broth. And, really? Uh, yeah. Why is that? If you want, well, if you want to destroy the lining of your gut, you've chosen a perfect agent to do it. Um. And I talk about this uh, now. I've got no dog in this fight. I, um, I'm from Omaha, Nebraska, originally, and you know the beef capital of the world. And there, I wrote about this in the Plant Paradox, and I, I'm a researcher in xenotransplantation. You see, you recently heard about the pig heart transplants in Baltimore um, when. When we were researching uh, using pigs as a as a transplant for humans, there was a sugar molecule in the lining of the blood vessels of pigs, beef, cows, lamb, that pork, 
that was that's called New 5GC. And there won't be a test, I promise. <laughs> New 5GC, I, I we have a... I learned about new 5GC way back in an advanced nutrition class a few years back, but I hadn't explored it since then. So tell tell me tell me what's what's the issue with with new 5GC? Okay, so we have a different sugar molecule called new 5AC. Uh, they differ by one molecule of oxygen. They're otherwise identical. Uh, so. We, our lining of our gut has new 5AC on it. The lining of our blood vessels have a new 5AC on it. The lining of our blood brain barrier has new 5AC on it. The lining of our joints has new 5AC. Now, here's the bad news new 5GC is rapidly absorbed by us and is we instantly make antibodies to it. It is a foreign molecule. And the more new 5GC food I give you, the more antibodies to new 5GC you will make. Uh, that's the bad news. Now, we've known this for years. So what? Well, there, as most people know, there is a strong association between red meat eating, and uh, dairy milk drinking, and heart disease, uh, arthritis, dementia, and cancer. Now, association does not mean causation. First to agree with that. Uh, I postulated in the plant paradox that because new 5GC and new 5AC are virtually identical, and we make antibodies, to new 5GC whenever we eat it, that we attack our own new 5AC because it's so similar, and it's called molecular mimicry. And that's pretty good, and that's a pretty good reason. Now, unfortunately, as I talk about in the book, it's way beyond that. We now know that new 5GC, when we eat it, is incorporated in places where new 5AC would be. In other words, the lining of our gut, the wall of our blood vessel, the blood-brain barrier, the lining of our joints. And the more we eat of it, the more the new 5AC is replaced. Uh, and we make antibodies to it. So we actively attack the lining of our gut, the lining of our blood vessels, our blood-brain barrier, and our joints. It gets worse. Animals that use new 5GC will not let it into their brain. They abhor new 5GC in their brain. Yet when we eat new 5GC, our blood-brain barrier is attacked, and then new 5GC gets directly into our brain which is a major driver of neuroinflammation, exactly what a guy who's worried about Parkinson's would not want to have. Wow. So it's no longer an association. and It is now a causation, and we know the mechanism. Wow. And now, can you still have it? Uh, yes. The good news is, the more new 5AC eating containing foods, which are fish, shellfish, and chicken, 
the more you'll displace new mm. 5GC out of these binding sites. Mm. More good news. It's a sugar molecule, and bacteria love to eat sugar, as anybody knows. If you ferment these foods, for instance, make a traditional sausage, the way it was used to be, all the new 5GC is gone. Wow. If you ferment milk, all the new 5GC is gone. The bacteria have eaten it. So... uh, there's the good news. That's amazing. If I can remember correctly from my class, um, the new 5GC, so cancer cells have an affinity for these new 5GC cells, and these are found in hooved animals. Um, and when you when you consume them, you have this antibody-mediated inflammation and carcinoma progression. So it, it creates an environment of, of inflammation, and, and, and that is what, any disease, disease will thrive on. So I had no idea that this could be displaced by new 5AC. Correct. That's unbelievable. I mean, it, it's so unbelievable. I mean, so for instance, cancer cells, tumors have, are loaded with new 5GC, and yet we don't manufacture new 5GC, which means they had to acquire it from us eating it. Now, what's interesting is that you're right. What these cancer cells do, because we have antibodies to new 5GC, they literally cloak themselves in new 5GC to set up an immune response. And in that environment, which becomes a very deoxygenated environment, cancer cells can have a field day. So that's the mechanism that associates these foods with cancer um and it's we're now working out the causation and it's quite frankly it's pretty scary but it's modifiable and is there is there any way to isolate the new 5ac from fish chicken uh and maybe fermented dairy products and take it as a supplement so you can get away with eating the new 5gc and red meat and no i haven't seen it but you haven't uh, made it yet (laughs) Believe it or not, we're hot on the trail. Yes. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Very cool. I mean, I'll tell you what. I actually have a, a fun little anecdote here. So I do a lot of spearfishing, and I recently um, we we landed a big uh, African pompano. It's this huge, 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 beautiful fish, um, and it was actually so big. And I, I hate discarding any scraps. Like we eat everything on the fish. Uh, it was so big that we were actually able to crack open the spine and eat the bone marrow out of this fish. And so in that case, you're telling me that that bone marrow contained no new 5GC. It was all new 5AC. And technically speaking, it's going to support my uh, my gut microbiome and the uh, the gut barrier because it has all these fat-soluble uh, uh, vitamins. It has some, some good some good fat. So, so in that case, I'm I'm clear. I should go spearfishing more often. Except that we now know one of our biggest exposures to microplastics is in fish eating. Yeah. I mean, at this point, what can you do, right? It's, it's just, it's everywhere. Is there, what are, what are some of, what are some of your favorite ways to, if possible, to counteract the effects of these microplastics or is there any way to bind them so that they, you know, so we can discard them uh, effectively? What, what's, what's your take on that? 
Well, number one, Michael, when we started, uh, we know that the more diverse your microbiome is, the more that these bugs will eat these things before they get to us. I mean, we now know there are bacteria that eat oil spills. Um, bac bacteria want to eat carbon atoms. That's what they're after. And plastics come from carbon. And so, uh, again, the amazing thing about these super old people is that they have a microbiome that will readily eat all this stuff we throw at them. Wow. Why are they accumulating in us now? Because, like Gutcheck says, we've systematically poisoned and starved our microbiome basically out of existence. So, this entire, you know, living galaxy within us, we burn it down to the ground and then we stomp on it every day with, with our food choices. You know, I wanted to ask you something about alcohol because I've now heard of a few cases where people are living, uh, especially Europeans, are, are living these super long lives and you ask them what their secret is, a lot of them will say, well, you know, making all my meals at home or, you know, walking every day, spending time outside, being around my lungs. But I've heard a few times now of these older populations drinking tequila, like silver tequila on a regular basis. And I actually saw a video of a guy describing how tequila actually contains some good pre or probiotic strains. Have you heard anything about tequila being beneficial for the microbiome? I mean, I'm sure that it's the, the dose is, is what makes the poison, but what, what, what do you know about tequila? Well, all of these, particularly, I mean, all of these start as a fermented food. And there's actually studies that I've talked about in other books, uh, not to break your bubble on tequila, but there was a study looking at diverse microbiome population, giving people either grape juice, red wine, or gin. And uh, the, both the grape juice and the red wine provided the best diversity. Red wine was better than grape juice uh, for reasons that I talk about in the book. And gin actually had a negative effect. Um, so well. uh, anytime you distill a fermented beverage, you're losing a lot of the advantages, unfortunately. Oh, wow. And, uh, the, and I'm sure the ethanol has a negative consequence, right? Like if you were to take the ferment and, you know, with, with no ethanol, I'm sure it would be a much greater net positive than adding in the ethanol because that, from what I understand, destroys the gut microbiome. Yeah, well, what happens with, with, you know, with binging is binging, the ethanol really causes leaky gut uh, and it really destroys the, the gut wall barrier. And it's not so much that you've killed off the microbiome, but it's a direct, you know, killer of the wall of the gut. Uh, another interesting fun fact, uh, alcohol does not cause cirrhosis. Um, you could bathe the liver in alcohol all day, every day, and you'll never get cirrhosis. What causes cirrhosis with alcohol is the alcohol is breaking down the barrier on the wall, and then bacteria are actually leaving the wall of the gut. And the first place they go to via the portal vein is the liver. And there, a battle ensues between our immune system and all these bacteria. And that's actually what produces the inflammation that causes cirrhosis. 
So what, if I'm getting this correctly, almost every chronic disease model, we're not fighting the disease, we're fighting the bacteria. Well, we're, yeah, we're, we're, we're fighting two problems, literally simultaneously. Uh, and I'll give you a fascinating story. Back in the Victorian era, in the late 1800s, there was a, a theory that became very popular called the auto-intoxication theory of disease. And it was basically that bacteria in our colons uh, were getting loose uh, through the wall of the gut, and they were causing the disease. And this got so extreme that people would have their colons removed People would have all their teeth pulled because of the oral microbiome. And it finally, it it hit right at the end of World War II. It finally died a horrible death. But interestingly, the colonics actually were started during that era that bacteria in your colon were putrefying and you had to get those guys out of there. And that's where the whole idea of colonics came from. Now, the problem was, it, it wasn't that per se. It was the bacteria were, all, were basically innocent bystanders, but it was also the period where whole grains were introduced back into the diet, uh, primarily by you know Kellogg's and all their ilk. And that that was actually causing leaky gut, which was allowing bacteria were minding their own business uh, to get through the walls of the gut. And you can kind of, I mean, there, believe it or not, there, there, there's been no, there's no confirmed case of, of heart disease until the mid 1920s. This, this didn't exist. Um, until we started tearing the lining of our gut apart. I mean, that is just insane. And I know a lot of people uh, who are tuning in right now have done colonics and they think they're hardcore, but they haven't gotten their colons removed. <laughs> no, the problem, uh, I mean, you know, you, we go to all this trouble to get this amazing, you know, 100 trillion organism, get them all organized, get them all talking to each other get them all sending important messages to our brain, to our heart, to our mood. And then you're going to wipe them out with, you know, a flash flood. It's like, what the heck do you think you're like, doing? Like antibiotics. Yeah, it's like antibiotics. Uh, don't get me started on antibiotics. Um, Wait, hold on a second. So what you were saying was that the colonics are like a flash flood. Yep. So they get rid of all bacteria. It's, it's, it's almost like an antibiotic. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, it's like Seriously. why in the why in the world would you do that? No why way. Would you, why would you wipe out, wash out the most important organ that you have? That is your microbiome. It is that important. And if if no message from gut check gets out except that, please. Don't do that. Seriously. Why? I actually just bought a colonics kit. Some, some of my friends talked me into it because I, I thought I was dealing with the symptoms of, uh, well, uh, uh, parasites. I mean, all of us have parasites. And I've learned that this was an effective 
means of getting rid of them. And so I did a whole protocol. I was like mono fruit. I was only eating grapes for like two days. And then I had, funny enough, bone broth. And then I did some colonics and I felt pretty good. I felt pretty energized. But I was thinking, I was like, I just had, a, I remember it was like a, just a two second thought. I was like, oh, what, I wonder what this is doing to my gut microbiome. I had no idea you'd be so opposed to them. Just one of the stupidest thing people can do. It all came out from this era of auto intoxication. Wow. So, all right, so now shifting gears, because I did want to ask you about antibiotics. I know that antibiotics can and, and will serve a purpose under extreme circumstances. Um, now, and, and every, anytime that I've ever worked with a functional medicine doctor, you know, they go way back and they ask me, how many times in your life have you taken antibiotics? Like, it's like a, it's like a big deal, right? you know, and it has implications in the, in the long run, right? It, it, at least the only person that I'm under. So, in the event that you have to take them, uh, what can you do to restore the, micro, the microbiome? Well, first of all, we're going to decide when and if we should be taking them. Most antibiotics given to humans are to treat upper respiratory tract infections, a cough or a cold, and they're almost always caused by viruses. Uh, most women can resolve a urinary tract infection by... Uh, using D-mannose, which is in cranberries, and changing their gut microbiome. might be interesting to men to realize that men do not normally develop a big prostate as they get older. It's actually caused by bacteria coming through the wall of your gut, which is right next to your prostate, and inflammation occurs in your prostate, and that's where your big prostate came from. I used to have a big prostate, but I don't anymore. Uh, yeah, it shrunk just because I changed my diet. So getting, yeah, so, you know. I, I, we have to return to that. We got to return to that. <laughs> but, but please go on. Oh, yeah. So first of all, back before the mid-1970s, when I was in medical school, there were no such thing as broad-spectrum antibiotics. We had, if somebody had an infection and we, you know, we had to figure out what bacteria that was. We had to culture it if we were lucky. We had to then test different antibiotics against it to see which antibiotic killed it. And then we give a very specific antibiotic to this person. And this would take days. When broad spectrum antibiotics came out, as the name implies, it was like cluster bombing. So now we killed everything. It didn't matter what the bacteria was. Everything was wiped out. And it was miraculous. We just thought it was the greatest thing, you know, that could ever happen. Because now we didn't have to go through all that trouble. Uh, we didn't have to figure out what antibiotic is. We just gave them a broad-spectrum antibiotic. And what we didn't know is that broad-spectrum antibiotic wiped out the gut microbiome, which we didn't even know existed. Remember, the, the Human Microbiome Project started in 2007 and, and finished in 2016. We didn't even know about these guys. And, you know, you know we're, we're napalming villages that we didn't know, had, you know, had denizens in them. And so, and... All of, you know, our, our kids were given these willy-nilly for every sore throat. And so many of my patients with an autoimmune disease just, you know, relate. Oh, yeah, you know, 
I was always getting antibiotics. I had an ear infection. I got you know, I had a cough. I got antibiotics. Indiscriminate prescriptions. Oh yeah, when you know when I was a resident in heart surgery and doing children's heart surgery, we were always coming down with the bug of the week that kids would bring in, and you know we were swallowing Zithromax and Zpax and Levaquin, Cipro like candy, uh, and who you know who who could imagine that you know I was wiping out this entire population that I needed so desperately. Wow. Now, that, that's bad enough. What we now know is that 70, 80% of all the antibiotics manufactured in America are fed to farm animals. And, and there was an expose last week looking at fast food restaurants. And virtually every fast food meal has veterinary antibiotics in the meat and glyphosate which we could touch on if you want, Roundup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Roundup was also developed 50 years ago in the 70s. And it was originally, believe it or not, Monsanto patented glyphosate, the active ingredient of Roundup, as an antibiotic, not as a weed killer. And you got to go, well, that's interesting. Antibiotic, huh? Um Glyphosate is a really good way of destroying the gut microbiome. And it particularly destroys the gut microbiome that's involved in the tryptophan pathway of making the feel-good hormone serotonin and also dopamine. And so we... The animals eat more. For the last 50 years. So you give more. So now you, you spray it on all crops. Uh, whether they're GMO or not. And so we feed it to the animals. We eat those crops, but now the animals are a delivery device for antibiotics and glyphosate. And so it's it's no wonder that we're just, you know, the walking wounded. I mean, I am just totally mind blown. I mean, I had known of this being like the new growth hormone for animals because when you destroy the gut microbiome, it influences how much they eat. It can influence, if I'm not mistaken, their metabolic rate. And it's like, it's just a way of saying, oh yeah, no, no growth hormones. But oh, by the way, they're eating as, they're, they're growing as if they were under uh, growth hormones. And now that influences us because we eat the animals that eat this stuff. You are what you eat, but you are what the thing you're eating ate. Oh my gosh, man. You know what? That just brought me back to um, do you do you know that guy uh, Andrew Zimmern who does the the food show uh, Bizarre Foods? Do you remember that guy? Oh, I've heard of it, but I, I haven't watched it. So but. one of his lines was, I was a big fan of the show. One of his lines was, he loves eating food that is still eating its food, which sounds disgusting, but <laughs> but it really kind of paints. The, I don't know if he had this, if he was thinking this way. I, I doubt he was. But it always fascinated me. And this just brought me back to one of those moments. Like one example was he was eating, uh, uh, I think it was like the, the small intestine of a cow and it still had like undigested like food in it, right? And, and he's like, this is what I'm actually eating. You know what I mean? And so if you take that kind of perspective, I mean, that's probably disgusting for most people, but that's the kind of way you should think because that's really what you're eating at the end of the day, right? So 
So, so, and then you mentioned previously uh, in the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned how you know we should be eating these seasonal foods, uh, local foods, because it's not just about having the gut microbiome strain; it's about feeding them uh, accordingly. And uh, my question is, you know, how do we uh, uh, monitor all these things and make it practical for people so that they choose the right foods um, in a more intuitive way? Because I think that's what everybody wants is to be intuitive but it's just nearly impossible. So how can we be more intuitive, you know, with our food? Well, uh, seasonality exists, um, even, even in Miami, um, <laughs> e- even in California, uh, even in the jungle, for instance, in Africa, great apes, uh, or in Borneo only eat fruit once a year during fruit season. And interesting, uh, great apes, only gain weight during fruit season. Um, and they they have a genetic defect that we inherited that converts fructose uh, into the fat triglycerides and uric acid. And uric acid is really good at producing insulin resistance and making you store fat. And so it was a really good design. Um, unfortunately now, we have 365 days of endless summer. We, if we aren't growing the fruit locally, we're bringing it from some other season that is growing fruit, but it's always picked unripe and then it's ripened artificially. Mm. So we're, we're never, we were never ever designed to be exposed to a constant influx of even one particular food. Uh, and there's, again, I talk about it in the book. If you look at the Hadzas, the, one of the last remaining hunter-gatherer tribes, they their gut microbiome dramatically changes twice a year when they go from wet to dry seasons. And it would appear, and it makes sense, that we would want to alternate our species this on a seasonal basis because that's what always happened before. The other thing that I think is important that I talk a lot about is we really should have periods where we're not digesting things. The, so fasting? The gut, yeah, we, we should have, we should do it on a 24-hour basis. Uh Sadly, uh, like I joke when I tell people, look, you should not eat break fast until lunch. They go, oh, I I can't start the day without breakfast. And I'm going, you really think our hunter-gatherer ancestors crawled out of their cave and said, what's for breakfast? There wasn't any breakfast. There wasn't a storage system. There wasn't a cupboard. There wasn't, you know, anything. You had to find breakfast. And, you know, that might be not until the next day. But now, you know, research from Sachin Panda uh, from San Diego has shown that the average of American is eating 16 hours a day nearly constant and only takes a break for sleep. Um, and 16 hours a day, our, our gut actually has to have downtime to repair. Like we started this, the, the more intact the wall of our gut is, the longer we live and the longer we live well. As that gut wall becomes 
porous and gaps appear, that's when we start aging and that's when disease happens. So you got to have repair time. You, you got to have your car serviced every now and then. You got to take a jetliner out of service. 16 hours a day is not, eight hours a day is not enough time to repair your gut. And so one of the fundamental principles of reducing the eating window down to six to eight hours a day is giving tremendous amount of time for repair work. And again, the more intact the wall of your gut is, the longer you're going to live and the longer you're going to live well, which is obviously what most of us want. Yeah, and from It's a lot no of re- good being in your 90s and sitting in a nursing home not remembering your name. Yeah, and None of, of us want that. No, absolutely not. And it's interesting that you mentioned this uh, fasting because a lot of the benefits that we see, at least from the research that I've seen, a lot of the benefits are mediated by this uh, glucose to ketone switch, which is an evolutionarily preserved response that like gives us all the benefits or most of the benefits of fasting. So like we need to experience that glucose to ketone switch, meaning we have to go long enough without food where we establish ketosis and that constant switch on a 24 hour cycle orchestrates a lot of this, you know, I guess nature intended uh, uh, physiological mechanism. Um, and, And I actually want to ask you about your, what you think about, uh, you know, premenopausal women that are, you know, essentially four different people throughout the course of the month, if you look at their hormones, you know, what, what kind of approach would you suggest in their case when it comes to fasting? Because I, I know that they tend to be very sensitive during certain parts of the month versus others. Well, yeah, certainly. I mean, if you try to get pregnant, uh, please do not do any uh, fasting or even time-controlled eating for the most part. We we have sensors that, and I talk a lot about it in the book, that actually measures your food availability, calorie availability, and your body will not pop an egg if it senses that uh, you can't carry a pregnancy through term for nine months without eating. And uh, I have a lot of female athletes, uh, you know, Olympic stars who can't get pregnant and they stop menstruating. I make them gain 10 pounds. And the next thing we know, I get a call. Hey, I'm pregnant. What do you think about that? And I said, well, yeah, you just fooled your switch. Mm. So the other thing that I think that's important is even in as people approach uh, menopause, it's interesting talking to these long-lived societies and I go around the world you know visiting these places and you talk to them about menopause and they kind of look at you and go what what do you mean and I said you know what what was it like and the hot flashes and you know mood swings what are you talking about um you know, one day I stopped having periods so what and you know and none of these people are on hormone replacement and it's it's just there, and I talked about it in the book, there's an astralbiome of estrogen-moderating bacteria. And if you got the right bunch in there, they'll actually control these swings in hormones. And if you don't have the right bunch, then you're on these roller coasters. And again, it all comes back to Hippocrates. Everything is, is linked and, to the and gut what, microbiome. 
and what kind of like environmental influences uh, that the you know modern world uh, sort of created? What kind of mo- what kind of influences in the environment uh, can influence that estrogen uh, activity? Uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about microplastics, but what else in our environments can we, you know, eliminate well, all of or these, moderate? All of these, yeah, all of these xenoestrogens. So these xenoestrogens are really bad actors. Um, so, for instance, paraben in uh, in preservatives in cosmetics. If you see the word paraben on your sunscreen, run screaming. If you see paraben on a cosmetic or a lipstick run. Uh, interestingly enough, parabens are, there's a, another class of estrogen disruptors in plastics called phthalates. And they're present uh, in most plastic wraps, by the way, Ziploc bags are phthalate free. Fun fact. I no have way. no relationship. Yeah, <laughs> Ziploc bags. But yeah, they're the only plastic bags I'll use. By- by sponsored by Ziploc. That's right. Yeah, I have no relationship. Uh, <laughs> the, the only ones I, use. I actually just discovered it. Just saying, somebody's got to figure out a way to get you know phthalates out of these plastic wrap. Wow. Crazy fact: women who eat chicken breasts a lot when they're pregnant give birth to boys who have smaller penises and have different sexual uh, inclinations and this is human studies i mean um, my mom must have had zero chicken breast in that case <laughs> ah, ah, ah. all right that's the line that's the line of the hour. hey come on that was that was you line that you gave me the alley-oop that was way too easy come on <laughs> oh gosh yeah that's but incredible it, but it's but it's true, yeah. So, so why is that? What, what, what are the chicken? What does the chicken breast? So have here's what. So the the chickens are loaded with phthalates, and of course the wrapping is plastic, and so you know, phthalates they they lock on to estrogen receptors. Now, normally a normal horn attaches to a receptor, gives its information, and then detaches. So it's it's a very physiologic thing. I used the example in a couple of books ago. The plane comes, it docks with the you know, with the dock. People get off, other people get back on, plane leaves. In the case of xenoestrogen, these don't behave like that. Once they hit a receptor, they stay locked on the receptor and the receptor turns on. Why that's important is way back when, when these compounds were discovered, the Environmental Protection Agency said, oh, yeah, right, we, th- they do that, but they're in such tiny amounts that there's no way they can be They accumulate. Yeah, they accumulate. And so they flood all these receptors. So these little seemingly infinitesimal amounts are actually far worse than if you gave somebody, don't do it, you know, estrogen. Um, and that's why they're so mischievous. Wow. And so they're constantly, yeah, they're constantly messing with all these receptors. So it's and, like, I mean, among other, you're seeing guys, you know, all these young kids walking around with man boobs now. Yeah, I got Nicolas. It's because we're, 
we're constantly being absorbed, uh, surrounded by these estrogen foods. Right. It's like it's it's a lot of people will go, oh, yeah, I mean, sure, the, this candle that I got, ah, you know, whatever. It's not the best candle. But it's like if you're lighting the candle, if you're putting on the, the perfume, if you're using the soap, if you're eating the chicken, it's like these things just keep accumulating. And, and that's the, that's the, they're, they're dangerous because they're so small seemingly that they're easy enough to kind of just disregard. But that's because that's why they're a problem because they accumulate and there's so many things around us that are constantly flooding us with these xenoestrogens. Man, that is absolute. So I'll tell you what, uh, there's some people that I know who tune into this show, people that I know personally who have these scented candles at home. This is the new ammunition that I'm going to start to use to get them to buy better candles. No, yeah, I had, I've, I've had an air expert on the Dr. Gundry podcast, and it was one of our most viral podcasts because he basically said, you know, you're killing yourself with the scented candles. You have, if you knew how many, you know, endocrine disruptors are going up in the air from your, in your house sprays, you know, oh, I, I love yeah. that. Or, you know, in the, the smelly stuff you put on your towels, you know, in the dryer. These things, so you're just smelling, you know, these xenoestrogens that are stored. You're inhaling them, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, he, he says, you know, you, he said, you think cigarette smoke stocks, like this stuff makes a cigarette look like a health food. Wow. And uh, I know we're running short on time here. I have a, a few uh, uh, rapid fire yeah, questions for you. So uh, a first question is, uh, if we can return to the, uh, the prostate, the enlarged prostate and the bacteria and how you were able to reverse the size of your prostate, because I'm sure a lot of guys tuning in right now, they're either anticipating this because it happens to most men or they want to totally revert this. So so what does that look like? So you you literally, you know, just follow the gut checkbook and it'll shrink, I promise. Uh, you really have to repair the wall of your gut. And you have to, you'll see in the, in the book, you really want to stay away as much as possible from a lot of saturated fats. There's some good ones and some bad ones, but bacteria can hitch a ride in fat-carrying molecules called chylomicrons, and there won't be a test. And they can get through the wall of the gut. And it just so happens, as any guy probably knows, your rectum is just adjacent to your prostate. And as any woman knows, her bladder is just adjacent to a rectum. And so this is where these bacteria are getting across. And we now know that the prostate enlarges from inflammation, not from any other, oh, just bad luck, you're getting old. I recently had a new patient who's 71 and a biohacker, health enthusiast, fitness freak, and he's on three prostate shrinking medications. And he's telling me he's in perfect health. And I'm going, really? How come you're on three prostate medications? He says, well, what's that have to do with it? Men get big prostates. And I go, well, I'm older than you and my prostate's fine. And he said, okay, now you got my attention. So, Wow. <laughs> Wow. And so, I mean, so far with what you've told us and what I read in the book is, you know, the carnivore diet is totally off limits for supporting the gut microbiome and the 
and, and gut health. Yeah, and I need to talk to the, the liver guy because, uh, as I talk about in the book, the, the highest concentration yeah. of new 5GC is in the liver. Are you serious? Now, don't get me wrong. Yeah, seriously. Highest concentration of new 5GC oh, is wow. in the liver. Oh, yeah. That's going to piss off a lot of carnivores tuning in right now. It's kind of like, yeah. Hey. Now, don't get me wrong. I will use an elimination diet uh, for extreme cases and i like it short term but when i look at people who switch to the carnivore diet and i've written about this their inflammation markers the subtle inflammation markers that we can measure on the lining of their blood vessels start going up and up and up and when we have them stop that those inflammation markers come right down so yeah it's the short-term effect um, to get a lot of lectin-containing foods out of people is is not a bad idea, but do it with fish and pastured chicken. Mm. Uh, but stay away from beef, lamb, and pork unless it's a true sausage traditionally prepared from Italy or Portugal or France, not our sausage. Wow, thank you for that. And uh, before I ask you the final question, I have one runner-up, which is about blue zones, um, and that's you know how do the cultures in blue zones overcome the harmful effects of say something like smoking? Um, how does that how does that happen? How do these cultures over there protect us from modern living? Oh, first of all, as as the book implies. Uh Smoking, at least in blue zones, is really, really good for you and is probably the number one reason they have longevity. <laughs> and everybody will have to read the chapter to find out why. But why isn't it bad for them? Well, their diets are so rich in vitamin C and other antioxidants in the foods they eat. Uh, olive oil, incidentally, will double a person's vitamin C levels just using olive oil. By the way, we we don't Especially manufacture rich uh, olive oil. <laughs> exactly, hydroxytyrosol <laughs> will do it. Now, th thank you for that shameless plug. Probably you can get that at Gundry MD. I think. <laughs> uh, anyhow, so these people have such a rich. Uh, antioxidant system smoking causes its problem from oxidative stress and among other things oxidative stress uses up all of our vitamin c uh, and vitamin c we don't manufacture so we have to acquire it and if you're acquiring it continuously like we did back in the jungle um, then we didn't need to manufacture vitamin c so we stopped the process uh, and so you look at these cultures, for instance, the Catavas smoke like fiends. They have, n there's never been a case of cancer, lung cancer or any cancer in a Catava, never. And what you are go, they smoking? well, what the, they're smoking tobacco, but they're not using paper. They're rolling their own and it hasn't been sprayed with, you know, glyphosate or herbicides. Right. But they have such a rich antioxidant diet, they're actually getting the benefit of nicotine, which is one of the most amazing longevity compounds ever oh, yeah. discovered. 
Interestingly, but, on the topic of Parkinson's, which we were discussing, I was looking at some research on lifestyle medicine for Parkinson's and actually found that nicotine is an extremely effective compound for the prevention and slowing the onset of it. In fact, they found that, um, and I, oh, get, I should get fact-checked here on the specifics, but it's like the folks that had smoked the most throughout their lives or had most recently quit smoking had the lowest incidence of Parkinson's because of the nicotine. Now, of course, most tobacco products are you know, contain thousands of other terrible chemicals. It's extremely addicting. It can destroy respiratory system, but it's fascinating. I mean, I'm just discovering more and more and more research. On yeah, it's, yeah, it's in my book. Nicotine. Believe it or not, British doctors who smoke, the smoking British doctors had a 60% less incidence of Parkinson's than the non-smoking British doctors. Oh, man. Well, hey, hopefully one time you and I can meet in person and get a good cigar and talk more about the gum microbiome. <laughs> awesome. Well, Dr. Gundry, it's been an absolute honor and pleasure. The last question that I have for you is uh, if you could put a, a, a word, phrase, or a sentence on a billboard somewhere, what would it say and where would you put it? Uh, Hippocrates was right. All disease begins in a leaky gut. Maybe simpler Take care of your gut and it will take care of you. And where would you put this? Um, where would I put it? Maybe in South Beach. Oh, that would get a lot of attention. <laughs> it's, I'm actually living in South Beach, so that's very appropriate. I'm a MacArthur Causeway going into the beach when you're about to go embark on activities that destroy their gut microbiota. That's perfect. Perfect. All right. That's, you know. Amazing. Well, on your way to microbiome. <laughs> it's been an absolute honor and pleasure. Um, I'll make sure to add all your links to the show notes, uh, your website, you know, both websites, uh, podcasts, etc. And I'm sure a lot of people want to discover your supplements and learn more about you there. So thank you so much. And uh, I'll see you very soon, hopefully. All right. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. So that's all for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in today. For all of the show notes, including clickable links to anything and everything that we discussed today, everything from discount codes to videos to research articles, books, tips, tricks, techniques, and of course, to learn more about the guest on today's episode, all you have to do is head to my website, andresprechel.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-S-P-R-E-S-C-H-E-L.com and go to podcasts. You can also leave your feedback, questions, and suggestions for future episodes, future guests, so on and so forth. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll see you on the next one. Have a lovely rest of your day.